listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Scripture this morning is found in the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It may be found in the Pew Bibles on page 981. My brothers and sisters, do not claim the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory while showing partiality. For if a person with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing fine clothes and say, have a seat here in a good place, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the, world, in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor person. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into the courts? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convinced by, convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Ron, for that reading. Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Dan. It is a joy to be with you today. Um, before we get into the teaching, I want to let you all know uh, next Sunday, October 1st, is World Communion Sunday. Uh, it's going to be uh, a special day, a special service uh, here at church. There's a number of things happening. Um, we're going to be taking the World uh, the World Mission Offering in the month of October. That's an offering that supports uh, American Baptist ministries, missionaries, and uh, local churches all across the world. Um, and we are also going to be doing some special stuff in the service. We've got a, a little bit of a different communion we're going to be doing. I'm going to let that be a surprise next week, though. But also, next Sunday is going to be our international potluck. Uh, first Sunday of every month, we do a potluck here at church. It kind of extends the communion table out there into a, a full meal. Um, and what we're encouraging you to do uh, for next Sunday, since it's an international potluck, is bring a dish that reflects your cultural heritage or background. Um, if your grandparents, great-grandparents came from somewhere else, which I think just about all of ours did, 
Um, if there's a dish that reflects your culture or something you grew up eating, bring it to the potluck. And if, like me, uh, you're a mutt whose family has been here for so long you don't remember where you came from, um, <laughs> uh, what we're encouraging you to do is if there is any kind of recipe or food from another part of the world that you like to make, um, or that you find a recipe of and are feeling brave, bring that in and share it as well. I know my wife Erin uh, makes uh, a few fantastic Indian dishes, uh, so we're going to be bringing that in, um, even though it's not our background. But So bring that in to share next Sunday. Does that sound like a plan? Awesome. Awesome. Very good. Um, so, we have been in the book of James for four weeks now. And uh, it really hit me this week as I was preparing this teaching that James tends to repeat the same stuff over and over and over again. Um, for example, today we're talking about economic inequality again. Uh, I think this is week, uh, third week in a row. Uh, so it's going to be really fun as we progress through this book, seeing how many times I can preach the same sermon in a different way. Um, <laughs> you think that would make my job easier. It does not. <clears throat> Let's get into our passage, though. Um, you can split this passage really into two sections. There's two sections here we're going to look at. We get verses 1 to 7, which are about not showing partiality. Don't treat the rich different than the poor. And then there's this second section about uh, mercy and judgment, which we're going to label mercy is greater than judgment. Let's spend some time with the first section, unpack that, and see if we can maybe bring these two halves together. I'm going to reread verses 1 to 7, and it is a lot. So here we go. My brothers and sisters, do not claim the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory while showing partiality. For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here in a good place, please, while to the other one who is poor you say, stand there, or sit on my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor person. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into the courts? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked? over you? Hashtag eat the rich. Am I right? <laughs> My goodness. Once James gets going on the rich, it gets real, real fast. It's like, it's like that, that political uncle at Thanksgiving who just wants to get going, you know. Um, James opens this section talking about this partiality that's being shown in these early churches, preferential treatment for the rich. If you remember last week, the verses right before this one, James says the true religion is to care for the orphans and the widows. Turns out these Christians he's writing to are doing the opposite of that. They're showing preference to rich people. Wealthy folks who come to worship are being seated in places of honor, while poor people are being pushed to the sides. Um, it would be like if we reserved the front pews of the church for the wealthy people and forced all the poor people to sit in the back or up in the balcony, right? Luckily, nothing like that has ever happened in America. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic, right? Of course, we do the exact same thing. We did the exact same thing for more than a century with segregation. 
Um, our distinctions, our preference, was based more on race, which of course has economic implications. But if you went into any church, almost any church, in the 1700s, 1800s, first half of the 20th century, in many of those churches you would have found white people seated on the main floor and black people forced to sit in the balconies. It's the same sort of dynamic James was dealing with back in the first century with the very first Christians. And he wasn't the only one. The Apostle Paul dealt with this. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a church in the city of Corinth, which is part of Greece. And he's scolding them because they're pulling this crap with communion. Um, in ancient Rome, it was taboo for rich and poor people to eat together. Huge taboo. You did not sit at a table with people from a different class. And so these churches in Corinth would serve communion, but they served the rich people first. And so the rich people, the wealthy Christians, would come to the table, and they would gorge themselves on the bread and the wine, often getting drunk, according to Paul's letter. Then, after they were done, after the rich had had their fill, they would sit down, and then the poorer Christians would be invited to the table to take from the scraps that were left over. If that is not a metaphor for our global economy in the 21st century, I don't know what is. James tells these guys to knock it off. Hasn't God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, but you have dishonored the poor? I want to highlight verse 1-2 here. Um, we're going to put verse 1 up on, up on the screen. My brothers and sisters, do not claim the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory while showing partiality. I want to highlight this, but I want to actually direct you to the printed version of this that's in our pew Bibles, because it's different. Um, you might have noticed that the slides don't always match what's in the pew Bibles. That's because the translation of the Bible we use here is a slightly older translation. So what we often do is we will actually go online and get the most up-to-date version for the slides. Um, and that's why sometimes the pew Bibles don't quite match. But this is an instance where I actually think the older translation is better. I think they got it right in here. Because while verse 1 is translated as a statement in the newer version, our pew Bibles render it as a question. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Do you really believe? I love that translation of this verse because I think it hits a bit harder. It's a little more shame-inducing as a question. <coughs> James is calling their faith into question over this. Do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in Jesus? Jesus who was poor? Jesus who was an outsider? Jesus who was marginalized? Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me? That Jesus? If we show partiality, if we treat people differently based on race or class or social setting, if our church is not a safe place for absolutely everyone, where we are all treated equally, we cannot claim Jesus Christ as our Lord. With that scary gut punch out of the way, let's talk about mercy and judgment. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. 
But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay. There's a lot there. James is talking about the law. He's talking about murder. He's talking about adultery. There's some tension in this section that we're not going to be able to resolve today. Um, James refers to the law of liberty, but then he says if you fail at any single part of the law, you're guilty for all of it, which doesn't sound like liberty. Um, he also says that judgment will be without mercy to those who don't show mercy, but then he says mercy triumphs over judgment. Is anyone else just a little confused by some of this? Hopefully it's not just me. We could tease all this out. We go point by point, try to fix this passage, but I, I actually think... All of this is pointing to a really simple idea, and it's an idea that brings these two halves together. Partiality blocks grace. Partiality stops the flow of mercy. We all need grace. Every single one of us. We all mess up. We all sin. We treat people differently based on race or class or religion. We hurt others. We covet things that other people have, and then we try to take it for ourselves. We all need grace. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, black or white, Christian, non-Christian. Every single one of us depends on the grace of God to survive. But partiality blocks grace. When we treat people unequally, we clog up the system. When we hold some people up, and put other people's down, we block the flow of grace, that very grace that we need. Partiality hurts absolutely everyone. James wrote these words almost 2,000 years ago, and we actually have data now that backs it up. Do you guys want to see some data? Other pastors will spice things up with like stories and jokes. I got data. Um, <laughs> Is anyone here familiar with the life expectancy gap? Has anyone ever heard this phrase? A few people nodding. Um, it's sometimes called the partisan life expectancy gap or the American life expectancy gap. It's this reality that in the United States at least, average life expectancy varies greatly depending on where you live. Our average life expectancy in this country, 77 years old, I think it's 77.2 if I remember exactly, but that's the average. And it's wildly different depending on what region, what area you live in. Um, here's a map that charts this divide in life expectancy by state. Um, this is all based on information from the National Center for Health Statistics. And I'm sorry that it's blue and red, you guys. Uh, I, know, I know those two colors have political overtones right now, but that's not, that's not what we're doing here. Um, just imagine it's like green and purple or something. But on this map, the way it's rendered, the bluer areas tend to have higher than average life expectancies, while the redder areas have lower. There are parts of our country where the average lifespan is as high as 84 years on average. That's on par with like the Netherlands, right? Like northern European countries that have some of the healthiest populations in the world. 84 years. 
By contrast, there are other parts of our country where life expectancy is as low as 71 years on average. That's a huge swing. 71 years is worse than some developing nations. And researchers have debated back and forth what's behind this divide. Some think it's like a red state, blue state thing, but that doesn't quite work out. The data doesn't exactly line up with that. Um, others think it's an ur urban-rural divide. Still others will point to uh, the number of hospitals, the number of doctors, sort of availability of care. All good theories. But there's some new research pointing in a different direction, and it is absolutely fascinating to me. Researchers at Salve Regina University in Rhode Island have lined up this data with settlement patterns going all the way back to the colonial period. Uh, think about those, like the first European colonies that were established in North America, uh, the pilgrims, people like that. And these researchers have asked what groups colonized different parts of our country and what type of society were they trying to build from the beginning? What they discovered is that regions with more egalitarian roots, regions that had less distinction between rich and poor from the beginning, are regions that on average are doing much better today. Whereas regions with really firm hierarchies in place from the beginning tend to be doing worse. One of the parts of our country with the highest life expectancy, one of the dark blue areas, is New England, which we're technically in, so good news, guys. <laughs> You're going to live longer, maybe. And New England founded largely by the Puritans, right? Now, Puritans um, were not perfect. Burning witches was bad. How's that for a brave moral stance? <laughs> um, but no, one of the things that the Puritans did well, one of their virtues, is that they did not believe in class distinctions. The Puritans tended to be more egalitarian. They envisioned a society where there was less extreme divide between rich and poor. By contrast, if you look at certain parts of the Deep South, those are areas that were hierarchical from the start. The rich had their place, the poor had their place. Men had their place, women had their place. Whites had their place, blacks had their place. Very firm hierarchies and distinctions. And those areas with those extreme hierarchies are doing worse today on average than other parts of the country because partiality blocks grace. If you go down the rabbit hole of this research, which I did this week, um, the findings are absolutely uh, wild. Rich people in redder parts of the map do worse on average than poor people in bluer parts. So this isn't something that's only hurting the poor. These distinctions we make hurt everyone. You can predict with a very high degree of accuracy how poor an area is today based on whether or not they were segregated and how long they remained segregated. Parts of our country that stayed segregated longer tend to be doing worse than other parts. Um, cities like Rochester that were redlined severely are doing worse on average today than similar sized cities that were less severely redlined. Partiality blocks grace. When we withhold mercy, when we treat others, when we treat the poor badly, the effects last 
for generations, and it hurts absolutely everyone. So what do we do? What can we do? What are we called to do as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to address this and to begin to right the ship? First step, we need to examine the partiality in our own hearts. We got to start there. Acknowledge the prejudice and the biases in your heart. And look, as a white guy, I realize there is nothing white folks are more afraid of than being called racist, right? But here's the reality. Everyone is a little racist. Everyone. I'm a little racist. You're a little racist. Black, white, we all have prejudices. We all have biases, whether we are cognizant of them or not. I know I'm biased. Um, I have a real issue with middle-aged white men in positions of authority, which is a real bummer um, <laughs> for obvious reasons. But no, my racism tends to take the form of a white savior complex. Um, I want to be one of the good white folks. I want to be woke. I want to be with it. I want to be perceived as an advocate and an ally um, for marginalized communities. And sometimes I am. Sometimes I am. Other times, though, just leads me to paternalism. Um, treating certain groups like a project that I need to fix, someone that I need to rescue. And that is racist. It's a bias. It feeds into this certain view of power where I am the helper at the top and they are the helpless. We have to examine the biases in our own hearts. Who are the people that you feel uncomfortable around? What neighborhoods, if you drove through them, would trigger you to lock your doors? Who would you feel uncomfortable seeing walk down the street or sharing an elevator ride with? Who would make you feel uncomfortable if they came into our church? What type of person would you see walk through these doors and assume they're here for help? Oh, excuse me, the teen closet's downstairs. Biases don't have to be mean-spirited, right? Not all racists wear hoods, okay, guys? Some preferential treatment is well-meaning but it still blocks the flow of grace. We have to examine our biases. Second thing we need to do as Christians is examine the areas of partiality in the church. James talks about this economic disparity, churches that are welcoming rich people better than we do poor people. This is still an issue, you guys. I've got more data, and warning, this next slide's a bit of a mess. Um, but this, this is from a Harris poll that was conducted back in April of this year. So this is pretty fresh. Oh, next slide, Shauna. Um, let's see. The pollsters asked, well, what this poll found, I'll give you the big picture first, was that wealthy people are far more likely to be part of a church in our country than poor people, which is surprising. Uh, the pollsters asked, how often do you attend religious services, events, or gatherings? And if you look at upper-class earners, which are the bottom right, 61% of the wealthiest Americans say they attend church 
weekly or daily. Some of them are lying, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> that doesn't quite seem right. But, but, compare that with the numbers of the lower classes, the top row, 23, 25, 26%, way less. The less money you make in this country, the less likely you are to be in church. Probably the less likely you are to feel welcome at church. And look at the numbers on this next slide of people who answer by saying they almost never attend church. 67% of the lower class reports that they almost never attend church, while for the, number, uh, for the upper class, it's just 17 Here's why this is staggering. We know from surveys going back decades that this is not how faith breaks down by class in the United States. Poor people, less well-off people, are far more likely to believe in God. They are far more likely to report that faith plays a, war, uh, a role in their life. They are far more likely to claim they follow Jesus as Lord. Poorer folks in America have plenty of faith. They just aren't as involved in church. Part of that is probably having to work Sundays. Um, it's hard if you work two or three jobs. doesn't leave much energy for church involvement. But this also reflects who we welcome in our churches. Wealthier people tend to go to church more because they are still treated preferentially with a level of respect and honor that we don't show to the less well-off. And I know our congregation does better at this. We have a more economically diverse congregation than most, but a question we always have to ask is who's missing? Who's missing from our church? Who do we see in our community that is underrepresented in here? Brockport's growing. Our village is becoming more diverse, which is fantastic with the migrant community, with uh, more folks moving in, finding work in this area. It's awesome. And we're starting to see that diversity in our schools, at the supermarket, but not in our churches. It hasn't quite trickled down to us yet. When I look at what our congregation has accomplished just over the last five years, on the LGBTQ front. Uh, we've let it be known that our church is a safe space for anyone to encounter God, regardless of sexual orientation or gender. Um, there's other churches in the area that call us the gay church, which I take as a compliment, uh, personally. But what would it take for us to do the same thing on race? What would it take for us to build a truly cross-cultural interracial community here at Brockport First Baptist? What would it take for our church to become known in the village and the area as a place that truly shows no partiality, where people of different races, different cultures, different classes come together to worship God as equals? We're not there yet. I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a whole lot harder to make progress on this front than it was on LGBTQ inclusion because we have a lot more work to do. We have a lot further to go. But what if we did that work? 
What if we had those conversations, set those goals, and actually achieved some of them? The fruit of that could be amazing. Um, it's not going to be easy, and that's actually point three on what we do. Acknowledge that this won't be easy, and do the work anyway. I wish I could give you three simple steps to root out prejudice in your own heart. I wish there were a few practical things we could just do or change that would, like, solve this. That's not how it works. It's not that simple. It takes work. It takes time. Sometimes it's going to feel like we are spinning our wheels. I know over the last number of years, uh, we've had a number of book studies here at church around the topic of race. We read uh, White Fragility together. We read uh, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. I've heard rumblings that we might have another group like that starting up in the near future. Keep your eyes and ears open for that. We'll see what happens. Come out to these book discussions. Participate. Have those challenging conversations. Let it shake you up. Come to our next Just Desserts event. I mentioned it last week. I'm going to mention it again today. On October 19th, we are doing Just Desserts here at church. That's where we have free dessert, pies, cakes, brownies, cookies, that kind of thing. And we talk about some issue of social justice. Uh, on October 19th, we are talking about redlining in our own community. It's going to be a really important conversation. Come out to that. Be part of these conversations. This work is hard. It's a lot easier to just keep showing partiality and ignore all this stuff in James. But we can't do that. That is not honoring to the Lord we serve. It's going to be hard. There are no easy fixes. But we have every reason to hope. Because James also tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy can overcome partiality. And a little bit of mercy goes a really long way. Let's pray. God, open our eyes to the ways that we have shown partiality and stop the flow of grace. Open our eyes to the communities and the individuals we tend to overlook and leave out. Open our hearts, Lord. Empower us to build the kind of church, to build the kind of community, and to be the kind of people who truly honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.